So this morning in our study of Revelation, we get into the seven seals. The seven seals introduce us to a series of sevens. There are seven seals followed by seven trumpets or seven thunders and seven bowls. And of course, that number seven means uh, completion and fullness and shalom. It's uh, the perfection of things. And so really what we're talking about is a fullness of time. These things are all going to occur in the fullness of time. This morning as we get into our text, as each seal is broken, catastrophic world events are unleashed. Uh, so that's why we, we kind of felt the need to sing a shield about us this morning. Uh, it's a little intimidating to start reading about all the terrible things that could happen. Uh, all of these catastrophic world events are unleashed. And and it happens, uh, one, one event with each seal that's, that's opened, each seal that's removed. And this has kind of given rise to the interpretation, this notion that these events are somehow the contents of the scroll. And I don't think that is the context at all. You remember the scroll is sealed in such a way that it can only be opened after all seven seals are broken. So the contents of the, soul, of the scroll, once again, are, are really about the will of God, the ultimate will of God. These are all the things sort of leading up to that. But we have tended to understand them as unique, not only to the end times, but unique to the end of time, leading many to assume that the seven seals that we read about in this, in this chapter, in the next couple of chapters, the seven seals are sort of a countdown to Judgment Day. It's probably a mistake to apply here a strict linear view of time. This is all coming from the Lord who was and is and is to come. And he's revealing to us what was and is and is to come. And the timeline of each of those things is sometimes overlapping. Nevertheless, readers in every age, when they get to chapter 6, begin to imagine that they must be in the latter stages of the apocalypse. And it's not that difficult to understand why. You'll see as we get into the text. There are six seals in today's text. There are seven seals total, but you probably notice that the sermon is ca called Six Seals. That's because in chapter 6, we see six of those seals open. There is a pause in chapter 7 where some different things happen. And then in chapter 8, the seventh seal uh, will, be, uh, will be opened. So let's start in chapter 6, verse 1. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. So here we have an introduction to what we commonly referred to as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The four horsemen of the apocalypse have captured Western imagination. Which is to say that people who don't really know very much or any Bible 
tend to have some familiarity with the four horsemen of the apocalypse. It is such a common cultural idea, and it shows up in literature, and it shows up in film. And the general assumption that is made culturally about the four horsemen of the apocalypse is that their arrival heralds the beginning of the end. When we see the four horsemen of the apocalypse, it must mean that the Lord is about to return. We're going to challenge that view this morning. Now, the first horseman is probably the only one whose identity is uh, seriously debated in theological circles. Um, The confusion arises from the fact that later on in Revelation, the Lord himself is going to appear as a rider on a white horse. And so here we have this rider on a white horse. He's slightly different from the way the Lord will be presented, but, but there it is. And so people have drawn a lot of different speculation about what this means. Uh, the fact that it is so similar, that the imagery is so similar, I think is probably the key to understanding what is going on here. And remember, one of our revelation principles, the most dangerous evil is almost. This white rider represents almost. This is not the Lord. It is something masquerading as such. So the the white rider intentionally looks like the sovereign Lord, but is an imposter. And for that reason, I come down rather firmly on the conclusion that the white horse and its rider represent false deity and false religion. Of a kind well known to the early believers, the people who are receiving uh, this letter initially are people who have been commanded, forced, when possible, to worship the emperor and to worship a whole slew of pagan false gods, all of whom purport to offer the things that Jehovah could offer. The task of this writer, the task of this false deity, this false religion, is not to champion the kingdom of God, but is conquest. It's the kind of conquest that we often see in the empires of the world. It is to collect up to to destroy opposition and to collect up as much power and as much wealth as possible. Then we read in the next couple of verses, verses 3 and 4, When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. The red horse and its rider fairly obviously represent war and violence. War and violence are really a close companion to false deity and false religion. Wherever people are claiming the sovereignty of God, they tend to enforce it with war. The Roman Empire, like all of the empires that came before it, was established by war and violence, was expanded by war and violence, and was maintained by war and violence. This was an image that the people knew well. Going on to verses 5 and 6, when the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, I looked, and there before me was a black horse, 
its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice from among the four living creatures saying, two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. This one is a little bit more confusing. The black horse and rider represent financial oppression and famine. The prices quoted are exorbitant. Okay, so I bought a five-pound bag of flour yesterday. I bought the good stuff, and it was $5, so about a buck a pound. This, the, the prices quoted here is a day's wages for less than half of that five-pound bag of, of flour. The reference to barley, barley could get more of for a day's wages, but barley is less nutritious than wheat, and so it was the, the chosen grain of the poor. You get it cheaper, but it's still outrageously priced, priced at a level that makes starvation a very real possibility. The reference to the grapes and, and, the, uh, and the olives uh, is a political reference. When invading armies would come into a new territory, they would typically leave the orchards and the vineyards alone, and they would destroy every other crop. And the reason for that is that orchards and vineyards take years to get properly established. I have fruit trees in my front yard, as you know. I have pulled three peaches off of my peach tree this year. They're the first fruits it has ever produced. And I've had them for five, six years. It takes a long time to establish an orchard. It takes a long time to establish a vineyard. And so when invading armies would come into a territory, they would leave those things in place, recognizing that they had a long-term value. The problem is that they would destroy all of the crops that were immediately edible. So in effect, the priority of the elite is to provide themselves with certain luxuries, even if it means the common folk will starve. In verses 7 and 8, when the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. This is the most overtly defined of all the horsemen. The pale horse and its rider represent death and the grave. This is the inevitable ramification of the other three riders. Death and the grave are going to be the natural consequence of idolatry, violence, and famine. And then we come to a, a slightly different reference, in, uh, starting with verse 9. When we open the fifth seal... I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? And each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer 
until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. The souls under the altar represent the martyred of the faith. This is the first mention in Revelation of the altar. We've already talked about the fact that the temple in Jerusalem is a reflection, a depiction of this throne room of God. And so everything that was commanded to be in that temple is going to be in this throne room in one way or another. One of those things is this altar. So the altar of God is there in the throne room of God. They are under or at the base of the altar, representing the fact that their sacrifice is holy. Their sacrifice for the sake of faith, their sacrifice for Christ is a worthy sacrifice. Now they call out for vengeance, which strikes us as Christians as maybe a little bit brash, uh, but this was a really common thing in the, if you read through the Psalms, calling upon God to avenge me, calling upon God to bring justice, that's more of a, uh, a normal thing. This is not personal, understand. You know, people saying, hey, I was mistreated, go get the people who mistreated me. This is about these martyred for the faith calling out to God to finally establish his justice. We died because the world was an ungodly, unjust place. When, O oh Lord, are you finally going to come and rebalance the scales? When are you going to make the world right again? And then the, the end of the chapter, starting with verse 12. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. And the whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals... The rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks and the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? The earthquake and the blood moon represent natural calamity. This imagery that we see here of the sun being darkened and the stars falling from the sky, the sky being rolled up like a, like a scroll that's been rolled out and then you let go of one end and it snaps back. This imagery was a common Hebrew poetic metaphor for chaos. Every once in a while the world just breaks out in, in chaos. These are probably not literal, but they are earth-shattering events. Things that are beyond our control. And it's interesting that he leads the list off with earthquakes. Because remember in Asia Minor, a lot of these cities that received these letters had at one time or another been completely destroyed by earthquakes. That part of the world is quite volatile in this sense. And so this is, this is a disaster they're very familiar with. Now, I grew up in California. I, I grew up not that far from the fault line in California. And earthquakes were a normal part of life for us. 
I remember being in school as a kid, and we'd have an earthquake. It was very exciting. Very exciting. Hey, did you feel that? We didn't think that much of it, you know, and then it's, at some point, you know, you, have, you go through a really big one, and you go, oh, maybe that's not as exciting as I thought. But, but they, were, they were sort of a normal part of life. I will tell you that uh, earthquakes in California have a tendency to unleash months of deep anxiety for people. Earthquakes are kind of a unique natural disaster. I remember when I moved to the Midwest, uh, people in the Midwest were like, oh, I could never live in California. You guys have earthquakes. And my friends in California are like, I could never move to the Midwest. They have tornadoes. Uh, earthquakes are a little bit unique because there's no early warning system. Never has been. You, you never know when, when you're going to have one. And then after you have one, if you have a big one, there's usually aftershocks that go with it. So for days afterwards, there'll be these little tremors as the earth sort of shifts itself back into position. This unleashes enormous anxiety on people in California. We have to break out all the counselors. People have to go, go through stress counseling and grief counseling after an earthquake. Why is that? Well, it's because the earthquake shatters the illusion that we're actually in control of things. And this is what natural disaster tends to do. We like to think that we're managing it all. We like to think that we've got our finger on the pulse and that we're handling it. And the reality is, every once in a while, God's creation will go, you ain't nothing. I got this, and there's nothing you can do about it. That's extremely unnerving for a lot of people. Uh, if... If your sense of well-being, if your sense of peace in life is dependent on the illusion that you're in control, every once in a while, the illusion is going to be dashed on the rocks. What's interesting about this passage is at the end of the passage, there's this, this very vivid picture of everyone, slave and free, which is a common expression just meaning everybody, but especially the elite, especially the rulers, the powerful, the kings, all of these people are listed specifically as running to the hills, literally running to the hills, seeking escape from this calamity. I think the significance of that is that these are the people who tend to claim that they have sovereignty over the world. And every once in a while, the world demonstrates that they do not. And so they are the most affected by all of this. Now, as we look back on these six seals, an observant reader will recognize, in many places, the fulfillment of these prophecies. If we look at the world around us today, presently, there is a woke religion that is attempting to redefine every term that we thought we knew. There is uh, an agenda socially that demands our allegiance, that suppresses dissent, that claims the authority of science, although it's not really science, it's this weird version of science that doesn't allow for questioning. 
and so has nothing to do with the search for truth. From our cities to the capital steps to nation invading nation, our agendas, our worldly agendas are all advanced by violence. Our elites of the empires of this world have taken it upon themselves to shudder entire nations in the belief that they have sovereignty over a cold virus. And they have now turned their attention to 4% of 1% of our atmosphere under the rather doomed belief that they will be able to control the weather. The weather. Folks, if we could control the weather, there wouldn't be both droughts and flooding in our nation at the same time this week, right? It's easy to understand why when we read through these things and, and we take into consideration things that are happening in the world around us, it's easy to understand why people always come to the conclusion that the return of Jesus is imminent. That all these things, all these things, a red horse, wait a minute, red China is threatening to invade Taiwan. <gasps> it must be it. It's easy to understand how we come to the conclusion that this is the countdown, and the countdown means that the return of Jesus is imminent. Let me tell you something. I have studied this at great, great length, and this morning I can say to you with absolute confidence, Jesus will return when God chooses. If that's not specific enough for you, I want to give you this little tidbit. This may be encouraging to you. Jesus will return one day sooner than just 24 hours ago. And that's about all we know about it. That's it. That's what we get. When Jesus is coming back, the Lord will make it evident to us. But for the moment, that's not our concern. That's not where we're supposed to be focusing our attention. We have been consumed with the idea, as we break these six seals, we've been consumed with the idea that what we're waiting to see is a world in which false religions dominate the scene, which violence carries issues forward, where famine and inflation rule the day, where death is a reality for everyone, where Christians are martyred for their faith, and where natural disasters strike. You see the problem? That is not a future reality. It's reality. It's the present. It's the past. It was true when these first readers first received this revelation. They were all experiencing these very things. These are not a countdown to the Lord's coming. These are all the things that will occur in a broken and fallen world in the interim between the time that is and the time that will be. 
So this is not about the final days. It's not even about the last days. It's about the days. These are the days. And these days have been occurring pretty much since Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden. Because what's like the very next story? Cain kills Abel. That's violence and war. There's a couple of interesting things that I think we can note about these passages that maybe will bring some clarity to us. First of all, note that it is the creatures, or it is the creation, that calls the horsemen to action. Now, some of the versions you'll read make it seem like when the creatures say come, that they're speaking to John, but they're not. They're actually speaking to the horsemen, calling them forth. And it's instructive that it is these creatures that represent all of creation that are calling the horsemen forth to wield destruction upon creation. Now, what's the significance of that? Well, the sovereign Lord is capable of suspending these judgments. And so there's never any question in Revelation that ultimately the Lord is responsible for these things happening. But his role in this particular vision is quite passive. He stands by while it happens. Meaning this is not his perfect will. It's just something that he allows. And why does he allow it? He allows it because we, as a creation, voted for a broken world. We chose to rebel against God, and so we chose this broken world. And the only way we're going to know how broken it is is if he allows us to experience the consequence of our choice. So what's been happening ever since we broke the world? Wars, famine, disease, poverty, pestilence. This partly addresses the question of why, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? Scripture tells us that God causes the sun to rise and the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. I incidentally, in this country, like I said earlier in this week, we've, we've got droughts and, and we've got floods. Uh, the sun coming out and the rain coming down is positive or negative depending on your perspective, right? In other words, God is allowing all of these things to happen because humanity on the whole said, we think we can get by without the sovereignty of God. We think we can get by without God's resourcing and supplying us, without his provision, without his purpose, without his presence. We'll come up with our own. And God sort of says, okay, let's see how you do with that. And the sad thing is, it does inflict horrible pain and suffering on the innocent sometimes because that's what it means to live in a broken and unjust world. That is the world that we created. That is the world that we invited. It is the righteous who call out for justice. The martyrs. Under the, under the altar, those who are prepared to die for the kingdom. But when will this justice come? 
You know, a great many people in our world today are out busy calling for justice. Only if you listen closely, the justice that they're calling for is not the same justice these martyrs are calling for. By and large, the justice that our culture calls for is give me what I want and protect me from the consequences of my choice. The justice that the martyrs call for is, Lord, come and take back control of your world and make everything right again, no matter what it means for me. What's the point of these six seals then? I think the point is is not that the horsemen are the herald of the apocalypse, but that the horsemen are the present reality of our fallen, broken world. This world is already wallowing in its own brokenness. It doesn't work. It is defective. It is unjust. It is unkind. Now, what we have to acknowledge is that the relative peace and relative prosperity that we have enjoyed as a nation over the last 50 years have sort of insulated us from the fact that the world is a broken, shattered place. And, and we actually get mad now when we're reminded that the world is a broken place. And that has sort of maybe begins to explain why so many Christians today rather shamelessly pursue prosperity because prosperity insulates us from that brokenness. But the reality is if my world in my life is secure and prosperous and safe, it doesn't really mean that the world has been healed. It means I'm escaping the worst of its brokenness. And that somebody out there is experiencing all the rest that I'm not experiencing. And so if I just retreat into my own safety and my own comfort, I'm in effect becoming part of the problem because I've rejected the pain and suffering of others as irrelevant to my journey. Well, that's part of what it means to live in a broken world. Remember this other revelation principle, the church exists on a battlefield. And so often when we're winning the battle on the world's terms, we're actually losing the battle on God's terms. Because the world is at war with the righteousness and the sovereignty of God. And it's up to us as the church, it's up to us as believers to stand up for the righteousness, the sovereignty, the kingdom of God. The overcomers will have lived by kingdom standards whether or not it has earned them a place in the empire. So let me just say this. A great many churches and a great many Christians today are consumed with preserving their personal experience of church, what they like about church, rather than consumed with the mission of the church. And a great many more people, churches and Christians, have been won over by a shallow gospel that teaches you how to be successful in the empire. 
But the overcomers are the ones who seek to create space on earth where the will of God is done on earth as it is in heaven. That's our focus. That's, that's who we're called to be. Remember this revelation principle as well. Our king and our kingdom are eternal. And that's what the whole story ultimately is about. That our king and our kingdom are eternal. And here's the tough question that we've all got to ask ourselves. What am I doing with my life right now that has eternal significance and consequence? Because it's really easy for us to get caught up in all the things that I want to do and all the, 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 the things that I want to achieve and, and what I want to be known for and how I want to be liked and loved and popular and whatever else. It's really easy to get caught up in the comfort that I want to enjoy, the sense of security that I want to have, the happiness that I want to pursue. But everything, everything except the kingdom comes to an end. What am I doing with my life right now that has eternal significance? and eternal consequences.